Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm Casey Tigert. I'm your host. I'm an author, a pastor, and spiritual director. If you listen to the bonus episode at the beginning of this season, which if you haven't, you can go back and listen to that um, anytime you want. One of the things I talked about was this year, this season, season three, would feature more voices of people of color. Uh, The podcast, I've always hoped to elevate the voices of women, but I realized last season and the first season as well didn't have enough didn't have enough language and conversation from people of color. And so this season has uh, been pointed towards reconciling and uh, overcoming that. And today's conversation is no different. Today's conversation is with author and speaker Kathy Kong. Kathy's wit, her her humor, her insight, but also her her prophetic ability to just speak the truth about her experience is so powerful, and I think you're I think you're really going to enjoy that. And I think there's wisdom in what she has to say today that I needed. Um, so maybe this podcast today is just for me, but I needed to hear this. How do we, especially me as a white male of European descent, how do I, in a, in a spiritual way, in a compassionate way, in a way of loving my neighbor as myself, how do I listen to the stories, listen well to the stories, and to be aware of the ways in which uh, Asian American people experience exclusion and ridicule? And how have I contributed to that? And how can I love better by knowing what it is and what it feels like to be unloved as an Asian American person? And how do I elevate the voices? Kathy's all about raising the voice. How do I elevate the voices of those around me who don't always get a chance to be heard? And so I'm so glad to introduce you to author and speaker, Kathy Kong. So, Kathy, as we began uh, talking, we were talking about our shared uh, character development of living in the Midwest and how the zombie apocalypse comes. We are the ones who are going to survive. And I appreciate you sharing that with me. People just don't get it, do they? No, they don't. They don't. And I don't know about you, but this this has been home for my almost 50 years, uh, the Midwest. And so this is all I know. I just know a really long winter, maybe there is a spring, short summer, beautiful fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If the weather cooperates, but yeah, this is, I'm just looking out my window. The snow is pretty. It's lovely. We call it a wintry mix. Like, (laughs) like it's some sort of nut mix or something. I don't know, but we'll make it. Uh, well, that's that's an interesting place to start because the idea of home is mm-hmm. critical. And I find people who grow up on the West Coast and they long to live in a place with snow uh, because it's so ingrained in them, this constant, ah, it's 87 degrees all the time and it's just so boring. <laughs> I want to be someplace with snow and fall. And, and then people like us who are like, you know what? Arizona's not that bad. It's not that yeah. hot, really. Right. Um, so that ingrained nature of home has something to do mm-hmm. with geography. It also has something to do with culture. Um, I'm interested that you would say this is home. How does, mm-hmm. how does home in the, in the Midwest of the U.S., juxtapose against home ethnically like yeah so um 
for your listeners, I came to the U.S. as an eight-month-old baby from Seoul, Korea, with my parents who were um, leaving the only home they knew. Uh, and we uh, settled in Chicago in the Midwest, and this is where I have stayed. Um, I went to school here. My first job was in Wisconsin. <laughs> after college, so Green Bay. So when they found out I was from Chicago, there was a lot of hazing. And uh, and we actually lived in Wisconsin for a number of years. So, uh, so geographically, this is home. And, and actually weather-wise, not that unlike Korea, not that unlike Seoul. Um, and in this space, there has always been a deep connection to my cultural ethnic home as a Korean American. So church growing up was always an immigrant church and home was always filled with different sounds and smells and tastes. And, um, and it made me, I thought about it actually yesterday, I was cooking, I was frying up Korean dumplings and making uh, kimchi jjigae, which is like a stew made out of this fermented spicy cabbage that is uh, core to our food. And my son walked in and he said, oh, it smells like Korean food. What are you making? And that pleased me so much. I, I cannot explain. Um, and so even though I have never lived in Korea as an adult or in my memory, I don't remember living there, um, that part of my life is always a part of me. What we eat, um, my, my family traditions around Christmas, not so much Christmas actually, New Year's, um, uh, harvest, uh, the way we treat different family functions, is always going to be Korean, Korean American. Yeah. So it's interesting. Your son says that smells like Korean food, not like that mm -hmm. smells like that smells good. You know, like right. it's the adjective. It's always the, this kind of food that. Right, right, right. And, and it's right. It's the grocery aisle where it says ethnic food. And it's kind of like, well, actually it's just food. For me, it's just food, and yet over time, it has become Korean food as opposed to all the other stuff that we eat at home. Um, but the delight was that it wasn't, ew, what is that smell? Which for me growing up was both comforting, like, oh, I love this food, but also horrifying. Mm. Like, oh my God, my house is always going to smell like this. I can't bring my friends over. I can't eat this before I go to school because, ew. Whereas my son, um, and he's the youngest, he's a senior in high school, has no qualms about it at all. So he will come home for lunch, eat it, and go back to school. And I'm the one who's saying, you might want to brush your teeth. I don't. I mean, maybe not because it's also high school and there are lots of smells going on in high school. Oh, but. my gosh. 
there's that's such a this whole podcast and the reason I love doing this is because the conversations like these lead to this understanding. It's not just knowledge, mm-hmm. but it's understanding of a way of living that is sometimes similar to ours and mm-hmm. sometimes outside of our experience, which I would throw that all, you know, in the category of wisdom, but I always ask guests the same question uh, because I'd love to hear the different perspectives, which is that word wisdom is mm-hmm. is big. If you had to define that, where would you start? Like, where would you begin a definition of wisdom? I would start with all of the things I heard from my grandmother and my parents that in my teens, 20s, 30s, maybe most of my 40s, rolled my eyes and said, that's not how it works. And now as I'm heading into 50, I'm thinking, oh, actually, maybe that's exactly how it works. Maybe we don't know everything. So I start with that is the sense of uh, recognizing I might not know everything or anything and being open to learning from others. I love that because that's unique. That's the first time I've, and I agree with it, where wisdom mm-hmm. has been highlighted as the understanding of a of an absence or a lack mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. a presence. Um, yeah. And it's both. Mm-hmm. And wisdom is is knowledge applied or whatever, but it's also that moment of saying, coming up against your own limitations. Right, right. And in your book, In Raise Your Voice, you talk about, you talk a lot about limitations. I mean, mm-hmm. The first two chapters talk about uh, imposter syndrome, which I want to come back to. But you also talk about complexity. And there's a quote that says, you believe that Christians are capable of handling more complexity. Talk mm-hmm. about that. What did you mean by that? Um, so, you know, I, I think back to like Sunday school as a child and, um, those felt board Sunday school lessons. So listeners of a certain age would remember, and others are like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, paper, you know, two dimensional and they're all the biblical characters and they're always white, strangely. Um, with felt and you put it and they hang, they like stick to this felt board. And it's very simple. It's very flat. It's very, um, it's a single color palette. And uh, that was fine for when I was in kindergarten, but even as a child, and for those of us who have children, we know children ask questions and they want to know more. And I think that somewhere along the line, Growing up in the church, I was somehow given the message that I didn't need to ask questions. And I think that we are meant to ask questions. I think in the wholeness of scripture, it is a going back and forth of folks who ask God, are you sure you want me to do X? I don't think you want me to do X. I'm going to sit here by the fig tree. And, um, and so I think that as people of faith who came into that faith, 
if we think about that journey, it is complex. If we think about it, right? Did I, do I believe this because I believe it or do I believe it because I grew up in the church? Do I really believe that people can change? Do I believe that I can forgive and be forgiven and then move forward into a better place? So I think that as people of faith, if we really sit down and think about what we say we believe, we should be able to and want to embrace the complexity of the world around us. So not just this little space of church or scripture, but the fullness of life. And what does it mean to say, I don't know all of the answers, but I'm going to walk and we'll see what happens. Yeah. That complexity, even asking that question that you, Mm -hmm. you, you said, but didn't say, which is to have a person ask the question, why are all the Bible characters white? In my storybooks and in my yeah. pictures and in my VBS stuff, right. when clearly, you know, Jesus was a dark-skinned Middle Eastern person. There's a character in the Acts, Philip, who was more than likely Ethiopian, so very dark-skinned. Or not Philip, but the Ethiopian mm-hmm. eunuch, very dark-skinned. Um, even asking that question opens up that complexity. Sure. What do I, as a, white, as a white person who's been taught that Jesus was white... Right now, I am following someone who some of my pieces of my culture have taught me I should fear. Right, like that. Oh, absolutely. That opens up this whole door, and that complexity discussion becomes important, which is something that you tackle in the book because I think the key to thinking about justice, and you talk about that mm-hmm. racial reconciliation is the core of the gospel, mm-hmm. but it begins with that question, right? Sure. Why are yeah. all my Bible characters white? Right. And even that question uh, is uncomfortable for a lot of white Christians uh, because what I hear is often the first reaction, which is, well, I, uh, I don't think that matters. Or I wasn't taught that. That's not what I believe. Oh, well, are you sure that's what, not what you believe? Are you sure that's not what you were taught implicitly. And actually, yes, it does matter. It does matter. Uh, The complexity around uh, race conversations and justice conversations within the church, I think we often want to flatten it by saying, oh, but our identity is in Christ. Yes. Yes. Who is Christ? Who is Christ? Is Christ that almost blonde-haired, blue-eyed Christ that I have, I actually have paintings of that I've taken and bought from different church rummage sales because I want to remind people, these are the images you grew up with. Those are the images I grew up with in a Korean immigrant church because we borrowed your buildings and rented them, right? So You may not think that anyone, any pastor stood up there and said, Jesus is white, but you grew up with that. And because it was never specifically mentioned and emphasized that Jesus also wasn't American, we grow up 
with this very flat image of who Christ is. And so I push back one on the colorblind thing because that's not something I think is a goal. Like, and literally, is that what we want? Do we really want everyone to be colorblind and say that is a high value? And the other thing is, if we say our identity is in Christ, we should be interrogating who we believe Christ to be. Mm. And Christ is not a North American, U.S. citizen, American-born, blonde, white man. Yeah. And if he is, that's a problem. (laughs) And it... You talk in the book about Im- embedded or embodied stories that give give examples of this. And for me, the one that always comes to mind when I hear people say, but we're all one in Christ, is how specific the, the book of Revelation is about, in the end, there will be every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. If we're all one, mm-hmm. we don't need the distinctions. Right. But those distinctions are important. But there are a couple of biblical stories that for you carry a lot of weight uh, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, embodying this idea of not only speaking up, but speaking up in a circumstance in which the racial, political, social, even gender circumstances mm-hmm. would say otherwise, especially Esther. Uh, talk, right. talk a little bit about Esther from the perspective you take. Yeah. So Esther is also Hadassah. Right. So my Jewish friends are like Esther, Hadassah, right? There are, there are um, organizations around Hadassah. It is a much, it's a much better right? name and it's much more it fun is. to say because it's like, it is. it's that sass, man, <clears throat> Hadassah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that, um, and because as Christians, we know her as Esther, for me, very much drawn to that story simply because even starting with the name situation. So I write and have spoken a lot about the fact that my name isn't actually my full name. And so my immediate family would never call me Kathy. Um, my parents named me Kang Kyung Ah. And it was actually not my parents. It was my paternal grandfather. And that is the tradition in our culture. So, you know, there's that patriarchy part there. Um, And the history of that name gets lost in the flattening of culture and assimilation, which is why Esther is Esther and not Hadassah. That is why she was told by her uncle, cousin, elder. um, And even that, you know, I was taught that he was her uncle. um, But in scripture, it's like cousin, and to me, everyone who is of my parents' generation is an aunt or uncle, whether or not we're related. <laughs> and they don't have names. They're just uncle, auntie, so-and-so. So um, that flattening and assimilation for survival's sake, I relate to because when we immigrated and came to the U.S., my parents then gave me Kathy because they figured no one was going to be able to or bother learning how to pronounce kyung-a, which is kind of a complicated name to pronounce in the English language because there are sounds that don't really exist. And, um, And 
I actually let people mispronounce my name all through high school. <laughs> and and then just decided like, you know, I'm really tired of this. And so, you know, all through high school, people thought I was Kathy Kang. And, um, and so it's that part of Esther's story where you just make a decision at some point that this is how you will choose to present yourself. And though it looks like she's in a pretty cushy situation in the palace, I would say mm, she is in as good of a situation as she can be in that kind of culture, in that culture at that time, having no family, no husband. Um, she's a woman. She's probably a teenager. All of those things. So she, she did the best she could. And then the actions that she has to choose to take are around uh, political and social realities that are tied to her place in society. And while I am not literally facing death for saying the things that I tend to say when I speak publicly and when I am on the interwebs, when I write, um, there is a threat. Uh, so I'm not facing guards who can, you know, immediately put me to death, but I have and continue to get vile emails from people who say they are Christians and praying for me and my salvation um, and have encountered people face to face or in crowds who are very angry about the things that I say and speak up about. And so in that, I hope pastors and Christians are considering how they have heard or taught Esther as, you know, kind of she wins this beauty pageant and it's awesome because she gets beauty treatments for a year. Um, that what she is being invited into, I believe, is what, as Christians, we are being invited into, is how do we die to ourselves if we say our identity is in Christ for my white siblings in faith? What does it mean to die to your whiteness, to address and recognize the privilege of walking in a culture and world that was built for you, by you, sustained for you, <laughs> um, that I benefit too from as a fair-skinned, college-educated Korean-American who carries a U.S. passport, right? Um, what does that mean? Because I think that's what the story of Esther is about, is that she does die to her Jewish culture, and identity, and then at some point has to deal with that, right? And I do think that for white evangelicals, white Christians, um, you all died to your whiteness because it was convenient. And you say it doesn't exist, but you say it doesn't exist because it serves your purposes, much like it did Esther. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, yeah. So for me, I, I wrestle with that, that too named, too cultured existence. And I've never not done that. And that's why I love that story because as an immigrant bicultural woman who still lives in both cultures that are deeply patriarchal, (laughs) Um, it's a reality that I can't shut off. So this is not the conversations that I conflicts I often get into with people who will talk about racial reconciliation often use the it's not a skin problem it's a sin problem thing mm-hmm. and that implies that it's something that we just choose to do like right. it's Thursday and I decided to hate people of another race uh, right but instead of it being a formation thing like it, it's right. not that you choose to do it it's that it would be very difficult for you to choose not to do this because it's right. core it's been shaped in you by everything uh, implicitly right. shaped inside of you i wonder how much do you see fear in especially in white christians mm-hmm. fear as motivating them away from that dying to our whiteness mhm well i don't know if they would say it's fear the ones that i am um, close with and are in that process and are honest with themselves and God, they would name it as fear. So I think that that's part of it is um, there's something about U.S. culture uh, and the way we have created our own history and tell the history and teach the history. There's not a lot of fear Uh, And it's seen as a weakness. And because I think the U.S. as a country and as a church, it's still a baby country and baby church, uh, is (laughs) just maybe still in that toddlerhood of like, no, 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 I do, I do, I do, right? (laughs) Like, I remember my kids saying like, They can't even say the full sentence. They can't say, I want to do it. It's, I do. I feel like sometimes that's what we're running up against is that it's, they can't even identify it as fear. It's just this like energy of holding on and trying to grow into something. Um, But when I do come up and I come across it quite often, it is trying to invite people into that fear. Like, um, what is the worst thing that could happen if you dealt with this? And what is the worst thing that you're afraid of? And, and when I see things happen, particularly online, but even in person, I'm not a racist, <laughs> right? Like that's the knee jerk reaction. I'm like, I did not call you a racist. 
but why did you come back with that first? Because if that is the worst thing that you can be called, think about being on the receiving end of that racism because that's the reality for people of color, whether it's the tiny thing, right? The mispronunciation, the, uh, oh, I can't say your name, so I'm just going to call you blah, 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 Um, to the more egregious offenses that make the news. Imagine that. So, I do think that there has to be a reckoning and an understanding of getting over the fear, getting over failure, getting over the reality that, you know what, you are not perfect and neither am I, but we're not here to talk about that. Let's talk about this particular issue. Mm. And to go back to what you were saying about, like, it's not a skin issue, it's a sin issue. I laugh about that because when it comes from Christians, I'm like, so let's go there. Let's go there. Do you believe in original sin? Do you believe that we can't get away from this? Do you believe that this is something in you? Or are you saying sin is just this thing out here? Because again, what do you believe Mm -hmm. as a Christian? So again, it's that, it's that watering down, making it super simple. And I, I do think, I do believe that Christians are interested and quite capable of a more complex life. <laughs> yeah. I hope. I hope. Well, that is my, one of my biggest issues with the original sin is that it often seems like a crutch mm-hmm. for not confronting some of these things. I, I love Dallas Willard used to say he saw a bumper sticker that said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And he said, well, my goodness... <laughs> Uh, I know we're forgiven, but uh, and I know we're not perfect, but we're much more than just forgiven. Right. And the complexities of that, um, mm-hmm. original sin can be the card we play when we, we just want to continue with our, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Mm-hmm. No, you're not. You're mm-hmm. one in whom Christ dwells and delights. You're created in the image of God. You, we're, all, we're all blessed to do better than this. Um, right. It's interesting because there, I feel like there are a lot of embodied stories in our culture and especially in the arts that help people understand, uh, or as much as possible, that help white people mm-hmm. specifically understand, like the movie Just Mercy that just came out, mm-hmm. or there are The Warmth of Other Suns, which I think is right behind you on your shelf. Um, mm-hmm. There are these books and movies that help us understand racism from an African-American perspective or from an African Mm -hmm. perspective, Mm -hmm. what are the stories that would help someone understand what it's like to be a Korean American Christian in the contemporary culture? Is there one that for you is significant? And I realize I'm I'm inviting you to some vulnerable territory and feel free to say, you know, this isn't a a carnival for me to show off my wounds. But, But if there is one that you feel like is important for people to hear, um, I actually cannot think of a contemporary example, um, and that actually pains me, um, but it also is a reality, uh, 
there are more broadly stories for me as a Korean American who is also Asian American. <laughs> talk talk <laughs> right? about that um, distinction there. I think yeah. It's so I like Korean American. That is very much a part of my ethnicity, and uh, for a long time it was my citizenship and uh, culture. It wasn't until I was in college where I began using the term Asian American, which is very much a political label. Um, Asia is a very big continent with many, many cultures and ethnicities and languages. And so Asian American, I tell people, the difficulty in, in Asian Americans coming together, even politically, we have no shared language, right? Maybe it's English, but it's not everyone's first language in that broadness. And so for me, kind of being a part of that Asian American identity then is a little, I mean, it's a little sad because then we try to flatten the experience, but it's also a way to engage and identify our stories in different spaces. And so, you know, there were movies like The Joy Luck Club. That was Oh my gosh, that was probably the early 90s. Don't do it. Right? Don't, it was the early 90s. Don't do it. You won't come back from that yeah, one. <laughs> I know. Like, oh man, early 90s. And I remember thinking, I don't remember ever seeing anyone who looked remotely like me on the big screen. And so I don't care that this is not perfect. I'm going to see it as many times as I possibly can. Um, and so those, I think, like, the Joy Luck Club, uh, The Farewell, um, Crazy Rich Asians, uh, currently Parasite, which is just is very much a Korean movie. But for me, as a Korean American who knows the language and can close my eyes and not read the subtitles and still understand parts of the movie, that is part of me. And so I think is there a Korean American story? I can't name one, to be honest. Um, I think hopefully in the future there will be. But broadly speaking, I will claim BTS, right? I will claim <laughs> The Farewell, which is not Korean, but very much a part of this sense of um, uh, a collective communal culture that says your individual feelings about this need to die for the, um, the peace and harmony of the whole, which I think is such a beautiful example of what my faith in Christ is also supposed to be like. I just don't see that in the U.S. church mm. very often. <laughs> and so I, I look to those examples to say, Look at that. What does what can the church learn from that story in the farewell of this Chinese American woman who's told she cannot tell her grandmother what she knows so that everyone can be happy. What does that mean? Can we do that as a church to say you your individual feeling about X we're going to acknowledge that, but we're also going to say, for all of these other reasons, we're going to do this. I don't, I don't see that. I don't see that. Yeah. 
It's interesting to me. Your book is so much about fine. It feels very personal, mm-hmm. and it speaks directly to the individual, saying there is this need for you to know who you are and what your voice mm-hmm. is and where uh, your opportunities are to speak up. And yet you come from a very communal culture. Right. How do those two things reconcile for you in how you address these American, you know, it's not these American churches. I mean, right. it's sort of both and. Right. How do you address right. these communities <clears throat> that are struggling with if we make the battle against racial injustice just an individual thing we've mm-hmm. already lost Correct. but if it doesn't start there <laughs> it right. doesn't go anywhere so h- how do you right. reconcile those two things right well it's it's what i have always lived with is my right so i have this name that i carry because my grandfather gave it to me and there is meaning behind that name and it identifies me specifically as an individual within the context of the broader family in my culture in korean culture the surname the family name comes first and so even within the context of the individual family comes first what does that look like for folks growing up in a more U.S. white American centric culture that says you are an individual, you can do whatever you want to do, blah blah blah. You're an adult at 18. Um, is to say yes, God sees you and knows you and knew you before you knew yourself. Within the context of the church, of your family, of the body, and of creation. That's, I feel like, the missing part of the theology of the white American church, that it stays within that individual, you've got your golden ticket to heaven, yay, you, and then you need to tell everybody that they need the golden ticket to heaven without ever thinking about what does that joy and hope of heaven look like as you live that out? It's not just waving the ticket in front of somebody else's face. It's living in this assurance that you are forgiven, living in grace, released from the burden and the weight of whatever you did that doesn't define you what does that look like to help people live into that and not be so tied to fear of what's next um i think that's i mean i imagine that's what it should look like that's and that's how i reconcile it for me is that um my identity is in god and god gave me this beautiful broken cultural mix that says i am never my own person yeah it's interesting to to think about that because i know some of our listeners are people who have had to leave the church of their upbringing whether it's Mm -hmm. their their literal you know from a kid to teenager or whether it's their spiritual upbringing Mm -hmm. because i don't know if you know this or not but sometimes churches are dysfunctional uh, mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. 
That's a sar- I should put the sarcasm alert on high for that <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah. Um, or it's just this process of of growth and maturation that we all go through. How does a person find a way to land so that they can make that community yeah. their first name yeah. rather than just a tag on? I don't know. Um, I'll be honest. Uh, we have not been at a church in more than a year and a half. Um, we were hiding, you know, we were kind of looking actively and we're now in a season of like, we're really tired of doing that. Um, and in part because for us as a family, we have left multiple churches, right? We've left the immigrant church and that brings my parents great sorrow um, because they, they know their generation has done something wrong and they're trying to figure that out. And, um, and then for a while we were at a second generation Asian American Pan-Asian church. Um, and then, uh, and then we were for more than 10 years at a local pretty white church and left that, um, a while back. And, and so how do you land? I'm not sure. I'll be honest. I'm not sure. Uh, but my heart is still in the church. I miss it. I miss, um, I miss having a community of people who I knew were praying for me and I could see on a weekly basis. Um, I miss having that uh, physical group of people who spoke that language of the church. And so while I have a, a broader uh, community and people in the area, right, there's something about gathering weekly that I do miss. I know others have left the church and they don't miss that. For me, I'm one, I miss that. Mm. This, this Christmas season was weird and hard um, not to have a community to um, sing the Christmas hymns together with. Um, but I think that it is a holy work and important work for people to wrestle with and try to decide what are the non-negotiables in re-entering and finding that space. Um, I am not perfect and neither will the church. I've heard that people tell me the church is not perfect. Yes, I know that because I'm not perfect. Um, I do think that it's a different conversation for white Christians. Mm. Um, we left a white church because they could not at that time name racism. They could not say it from the pulpit. And after all that has happened in the last few years, particularly, I, we just couldn't stay. We couldn't, we couldn't stay. And so finding a church, whether it is multi-ethnic, multiracial, white, immigrant, um, we need to find a place that can name the realities that we're living in. I do think that the, that the process can be different for white Christians. Mm. And that, again, is a privilege. Um, and, and the way in which you can choose to engage is different. Yeah. yeah. We have to confess that when we look for a church, what we're looking for is music, childcare, and 
you know, whether we like the speaker or not, but other people are looking for whether or not you will celebrate my humanity. Right. Whether or not right. you will advocate for the things that oppress people who like me. Right. Um, right. Or against the things right. that sounds weird. We well, advocate against, against the, the things, things that, uh, the things that oppress me. And, you know, we, we were at the church we were at for a while because they had a great Sunday school program and youth group. And we we knew that our kids would not see kids like themselves in the staff, in the sanctuary, um, in the materials. There were certain things that we could push for, but after a while, we, I just, we just get tired of pushing, right? Yeah. We get tired of pushing. And so for that, I would say, I can live into that privilege of saying, yeah, I'm going to pick a community church for all of the reasons why it's important to pick a church locally but we give up a lot and um uh and quite frankly as a as a korean american woman who tends to be rather outspoken um i have been labeled as a troublemaker in multiple spaces and churches so you know that label sticks in a different way to me than it would to you yeah so with your book, I, I feel like the journey of spiritual formation is built on invitations. Mm -hmm. Is there a specific invitation or two you feel like you were hoping to give to people who read Raise Your Voice? Um, I think the specific invitation would be um, in a very individualistic society and culture and even church, um, understanding who God has created you to be and your gifts and your passions and the things that keep you up at night are part of the gift you bring to the body. The things that hurt you should hurt the rest of the body. The things that bring you healing should bring healing to the rest of the body. And I think because um, we have become such an individualistic church, that's the invitation, right? How can you be a part of the body again? Name your hurt and name the healing that you've found. Mm. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thanks, thanks for raising your voice. Um, some you. people may say troublemaking, I say educating, uh, which we need. And hopefully as we've listened to what you've had to say today, uh, our wisdom is filled, but also we're mm -hmm. more aware of the places where we need more conversation. Uh, we need to just go and sit at the feet of some people who are not like us. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and die to that whiteness that keeps us from doing it that says, well, what if I find out something I don't want to find out? Newsflash, you probably will. <laughs> that's not being, that's, that's actually just right. life. That's not even right. being white. That's just being a, yeah, hu exactly. a human being. <laughs> but specifically, thank you for drawing our attention to that. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you.
Kathy Kong describes herself as a writer, speaker, coffee drinker, and yoga teacher. Uh, She is the co-author of a book called More Than Serving Tea about the intersection of faith, culture, and gender, and it tells a part of her story of Asian American Christian women. Her newest book is called Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up, and you can find links to both of those on the show notes for this episode. You can also find a way to connect with Kathy there as well. I wonder today if you heard a phrase or a sentence in Kathy's conversation that caused you to pause, that caused you to maybe wince a little bit. I would encourage you to go back to that spot in the podcast. If you have time, I would encourage you to go back to that spot in the podcast and listen to that phrase and simply open yourself up and and say, God or the divine or however you refer to uh, divinity, teach me something. Help me to learn something about myself. Help me to learn something about how I love. Help me to learn about the privileges I have that maybe I, I just haven't thought of. Give yourself some time to sit with that phrase and hear what might be out there for you to learn. If you're listening on iTunes, thanks for doing that. If you wouldn't mind rating or reviewing the podcast, that would be great. If you're listening on Spotify, awesome. Or if you're streaming via my website, caseytigret.com, thank you for that as well. Uh, if uh, you want to share this episode with someone, you, you think there's somebody who would enjoy it, it's easy to share these. Feel free to copy the links or uh, to use the tools on either iTunes or on Spotify to share. And so my friends, may you listen well to the voices of those around you. Maybe you hear the stories that are not being spoken loudly. May you help to raise the voices of those around you who have something to say, but have not been able to say it. And if you are someone who feels that way, I pray you're encouraged by what Kathy had to say today. Till next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace.